read that entire chapter this morning, Hosea chapter 1. Let's turn there in our Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, ushers stand ready with a Bible that you can use. Raise your hand and they'll bring one right to you. It's the second part of our series in Hosea. We started with introduction. Today we will begin to get through chapter 1. We'll see how far we get there. We'll be reading, though, the entire chapter, just 11 verses of chapter 1. So let's stand together in respect to the reading of God's Word, Hosea 1 in its entirety. Word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblame, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy... She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. May God give us understanding in this portion of scripture we read and preach from this morning. I ask if you would to bow your head with me in a time of prayer, after prayer, a song from our choir, and then the preaching of God's word. Father, we're thankful to be here today. We thank you for allowing these doors to be opened and allow this ministry to continue. And we would pray with your strength and with your power and by your grace, we will continue on ministering your word and living out and speaking out the gospel in our lives and in this work. We thank you for the grace that allows uh, my father to be here today. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have given him those 89 years and 51 weeks, one week away from, just six days away from his 90th birthday. We rejoice for your grace in that, Lord, and we thank you for that. We pray that you would just continue to bless him, continue to administer your grace to his body, watch over him. We also pray, Lord, for Dwayne today. I know he wanted to be here today, and we pray that you would just continue to watch over him as he recovers from the stroke that he had late last year, and that you would just allow him to have a total recovery and to join us again in, in the fellowship of the saints here. We thank you for each one that is here today. Thanking you, Lord, for your faithfulness in their lives and their response to that faithfulness by a desire to serve you and to be here to worship and to honor you. We, bless, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word today, make it clear in our minds so that our hearts are challenged to love you, to appreciate you all the more, and to devote ourselves to worshiping you and pleasing you. This we pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Father, we thank you for this moment now where your word is to be delivered. We pray for your power, your grace to preach, to understand, to see, to receive your word and then to rightly apply it in our lives. Open our eyes that we might see, move in our hearts that we might act in obedience to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a study in the Old Testament and that can be a challenge to some of us um, because we are not as familiar with the Old Testament. And part of that is because of the history that takes place in the Old Testament. So I've sought to kind of lay that out, and um, I won't keep relaying that, but I hope that you, especially now in January, in the new year, we often are starting to read through the Bible uh, right from the start. And so I hope you uh, get an appreciation for, or maybe this will help you appreciate what's happening in the Old Testament so that we can see what God is doing. One of the things that God has challenged me in my thinking about the Old Testament, it's a kind of an old uh, thing that, that will be taught, maybe sometimes directly said and sometimes just implied, that the God of the Old Testament is, is, is vastly, somehow vastly different than the God of the New Testament. And in fact, some have even said that the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment, the God of fire and brimstone. And uh, the God of the New Testament is a God of grace, where grace is presented. And I don't think that can be further from the truth. We should see how the Old Testament opens our eyes to this God of grace. And in fact, what we see is we can't understand grace until we uh, appreciate and understand judgment. And what we see in, in this chapter, and in fact, in this book, is judgment and mercy. I've entitled this series or this message today a shunning revelation. 
judgment and mercy, a shunning revelation of judgment and mercy. So we open up today, we look at verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, I'm going to stop there and just pause and let us take that in at first. We understand from that from those words, that this is a prophetic message. God is speaking through Hosea. God is, is, is giving a message to his people through his messenger, Hosea. And God has something to say. We talked last week how God speaks through history, and he speaks to his people, and God is sovereign over all of history, and so he is still speaking to us today through the history, through the past, and it is relevant to us today. So this is a prophetic message. God is speaking through his prophet to his people. He has a word to speak to them. He, it says here, the Lord first spoke through Hosea. This is not just plain history as we might get bored with history sometime, but this is God speaking and using history to present a message or communicate his intent, to communicate his power, to communicate uh, 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 who he is and what he's about to do and what, he, what he's going to do through this man, Hosea. Now there's something unique about a prophetic message. We have people who claim to be prophets today. But here I see something. The Lord communicates through the prophet's personal life. It's not just what he says that is the message of God, but it is his whole life that is the message. And, and of course, that is, is prepares us. In the New Testament says, God who in, in the previous days, last days, spoke to us by the prophets, now he's speaking to us what? Through his son. And when he began to speak to us through his son, it wasn't just the words that Jesus said, but the whole, the whole purpose of his life, the, the, the whole point, the whole direction that his life took. His, his words, his action, and everything he did is God's revelation of his judgment and his grace or his mercy to us. Jesus Christ personifies that like no one else can. In the Old Testament, God spoke through the prophets and used their personal life. That's why when you speak to somebody, you want to share the gospel with them, it's important that you have the gospel straight in the content, but it's also important that you have the gospel straight <laughs> in the context of your life. In other words, they're looking at you and saying, that's what the gospel looks like? Don't just tell me the truth, show me the truth. They're saying, what are you saying with the message of your whole life? Not just your mouth and your words, but what is your whole life portraying? And so God used the prophet in that way. He used Hosea. He used Hosea's whole family, including Hosea's wife and his children, to give a message to Israel. So you want to be a prophet of God. Look at Hosea. Look at verse 2. 
When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In this opening phrase, we see the, the context of which Hosea is speaking to. He is speaking to a people that God has claimed as his own, but has forsaken God and has gone after other gods as if a married woman would forsake her husband and go after and pursue other men. And he says, I want you to picture yourself because this is what it looks like. And so it is a stunning revelation, but it is a vivid picture. It is a vivid picture. In fact, we, we, we shudder to look at it sometimes. We, we don't want to talk about it in mixed company sometimes because it's so out there. It's so vivid. It's a vivid, it's a vivid picture of a marriage that has been violated in an extreme and unattractive way. He tells Hosea, because he's speaking through his prophet, I want to take your life and use it as a picture to give a message to my people. So clearly the message here is that Hosea represents God and Gomer, his wife, and his children, which we'll get into their names, represent the people of God who have gone astray. And so this is a vivid picture, first of all, of unbelievable unfaithfulness. Unbelievable unfaithfulness. Why is it unbelievable? Because Hosea is pictured as a faithful, godly man who has been faithful to this wife that he has chosen, and yet Gomer is pictured as a woman who has gone away from the faithfulness of her husband and longed after other men. Now, why is this a picture? We see the picture very clearly. We know what it looks like. In fact, we shudder to look at it too close, and we say, oh, Lord, why such a vivid picture? Hosea clearly represents God, and Gomer represents the unfaithful Israel who's gone away from God. We see the setting that Hosea is, 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 is speaking in, and, and we see that in the history of the Old Testament that Israel had been warned not to go after other gods, not other idols or others that the other nations around them proclaimed as gods, and the Bible always calls them false gods because they're not real. They're made with man's hands. They're to represent something that is nothing. There's one God and God alone, and everything else is, is false. But Israel would go after the gods that the nations around them were worshiping, and one of the, the common gods that we see in the Old Testament is this, this, this Baal worship. 
And, and so the nations around them would worship Baal, and that was the name of their god. And, it, and I'm going to bring up this point as we get closer into it, is that one of the vivid pictures of that in the Old Testament is, is the prophet Elijah. And the king of Israel during his time was the king Ahab. And we see when, when Elijah defeated the 450 prophets false prophets of Baal and, and, and what happened. He was given a picture how Israel should come away from the worship of anything that is opposed to or that is not true Jehovah God and worship him only. Now, to, to, to what we often do today is we dismiss that as kind of just an old thing. We say, you know, I don't have no idol in my house uh, made of bronze or, or wood. And so I can't relate to Israel's worship. But idolatry means anything that we give honor to, and I'll tell you how we give honor to, uh, uh, in in the place of God. I'll show you how you give honor to. You give your time. You give your devotion. You give your money. You give your attention to. Anything that we give our attention, time, devotion, money to, uh, 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 more than God is an idol above God. And so we often look at idols as detestable things and, and, and things that are despicable. But in, in reality, in our lives, there are things that we love, things that we cherish. And in fact, we cherish them so much that we put them above God. So for, for a person to say to me today, i got to go shopping. I can't go to church today. They think it's nothing. I, I'm thinking right away, really? Really? Shopping is more important to you than worshiping God at the designated time that God has set for his people here to meet. And so we easily get into idolatry. Every day that we make decisions up and over and above God, we are practicing honoring something or someone else who is not God in the place where only God should be. One author has put it that this way. He says, we are, our hearts are idol factories. In other words, we'll make an idol out of anything. We make idols out of our children, out of our job. We make idols out of shopping, out of sleeping, out of money, out of spending money, out of our freedom, our own time. I got to have time to myself. We make idols out of our homes, out of our cars, out of our hair, out of our fingernails. We make idols out of our fashion. We make idols out of anything. And so we quickly ought to really relate to the people of Israel because we're no better than them. They, they did exactly what we do today. They substitute many things in life for God. We also make idols by who we honor above God. We make idols out of honoring our Facebook friends over what the Word of God says out of honoring their opinions. We make idols by honoring our, our doctor's uh, declaration over what God says. 
out of our psychiatrist saying that we should even have one over what God says, over any advice that puts itself on the level over, over and above God. And so we live in a day that's not really strange to idols at all if we would open our eyes and see how we actually live. So if you would look at how you devote your time, how you spend your money, where your respect and honor goes, you would see what you most raise and lift up and honor. And if that's competing with God, in other words, if it's not measured compared to God and, and God is not far above that, you have put something else in the place of God. It can be something that in itself is not wrong or bad, but because you have placed it there, God says he's a jealous God. He doesn't like those things. We put our health over and above God. We put our vacations over and above God. So there are many things that we easily make idols of. And so the picture here is that the people of God have followed the practices of the people around them and have dishonored God. And he makes it a vivid picture because we can't ignore that, that the faithfulness of a sacred relationship has been devastated, violated, and desecrated. It's a vivid picture. Yet in this vivid picture is what I would call a stunning revelation. The stunning revelation is even portrayed here in chapter 1. When you read through chapter 1, I've kind of outlined it this way. We see the judgment of God, and we see that starting in verse 4. And you can kind of outline that in the names of the children. You see God's judgment in the first child born named Jezreel. We see it in the second child born named No Mercy, verse 6 and 7. And we see it in the third child born in verse 8 named Not My People. We'll go more into detail of what that means. But we see the judgment of God being portrayed there. In Jezreel, in verse 4 and 5, look what he says. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. Look at verse 3. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaine, and she conceived and bore him a son. So you know, I, I could spend so much time on this. It's, it's interesting to me that God doesn't tell us to do this today. He doesn't tell us to go and take a woman who's, who, who's unfaithful and has a heart to go after other men and to marry that type of person. God doesn't tell us to do that today. And through this passage, he's not saying to do that. But I kind of I chuckle because if God told us to do that, we wouldn't want to do it. I certainly wouldn't want to do what, Gomer, what, 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 what Hosea did and take a wife like Gomer. But in today's day, God tells us not to do it, and we go and do it. God is 
communicating a message through the life of Hosea. And the message is one of judgment, first of all. And we see that with the first child born. Verse 4, called his name Jezreel. Three things he says to this. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Verse 4. He says this, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Verse 4. And in verse 5, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. When he says, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, he's saying, Israel has committed offenses that I will judge. God is saying, judgment is real. It's going to come. When you go against God, you can expect God's judgment. It's not an Old Testament thing versus a New Testament thing. It's a God thing. God judges sin. And he says, when this sin has been committed, I will stand against it. I'm going to get into the particular sin that he's talking about there or what he's representing. But the second thing he says, I will put an end to the, to the kingdom of the house of Israel. He's saying the nation of Israel, we talked about the history, how a divided kingdom after Solomon, there's the, 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 the kingdom of Israel and then there's the kingdom of, of Judah. And the kingdom of Israel, because of its blatant sin, God judged and that kingdom, that nation came to an end. It was brought into captivity uh, in Samaria in 722. 722 B.C. And so God did what he said that he would do. He judged Israel and brought them to an end. And then he says this, the third thing, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. What is the bow of Israel? Bow was a, a symbol of the strength of a warrior. Okay, today we'll say he got a big gun. Don't mess with him. Okay? And that day it was a bow. Yeah, bow and arrow. He's going to break the bow. He was going to show that the strength of, of Israel was going to be devastated. He was going to break their power. He was going to do that in the Valley of Jezreel. Let's talk about now what that means because that, that just kind of seems at odd. Now, to, to tell this story, I want to explain who Jehu is and what Jezreel is. So, so bear with me, but I want to tell it through a couple stories that the Bible tells. First of all, we need to understand a little bit about, uh, in the history of Israel, a king named Ahab. We understand, we've heard about Ahab and who he is, but let's take a look at 1 Kings chapter 16. So turn there with me. 1 Kings 16. Everybody wants to be on the electronic Bibles because I don't hear them turning. 1 Kings 16, verse 29. I've chose this because this gives us a summary of what this king was like. 1 Kings 16, you with me? Say amen. All right, I can get some feedback. That's good, that helps me. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Remember how it said that oftentimes they will give you a reference point for this king of, of, of Israel referenced by the king of Judah, or they give you a reference point for this king of Judah referenced by the king of Israel. And that's what's happening here. So it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, 
reigned over Israel in Samaria. That was a capital city, basically. 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord. Not only did he did evil, look what it says, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. All right, so we, we get a sense for, for who he is. Keep going, verse 32. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, excuse me, and Ahab made an Asherah. That was kind of a pole with the idol on top of it that, that he would have worship. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So that gives us just a little sense, and that's, that's commentary from the Word of God, right? It tells us uh, the summary of Ahab's life. And what was central to him is that he led Israel, God's people, in the worship of a false god, this false god named Baal. And, and God was uh, uh, very, very angry with that type of leadership from Ahab. So that, that gives us a summary of Ahab. Now, the thing that we know about Ahab is there's a great prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Elijah. And so um, we see his interaction with Ahab. And in fact, there's a couple stories that go with that that will help us understand. The first story is when Elijah contends with the prophets of Baal before Ahab, king of Israel, in 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, you can jot that down. I'm not going to verbatim read those verses, but 1 Kings chapter 18 is the reference point. Let's just talk through what happened and tell that story. We know that Elijah challenged the people of Israel, and he says, If God is God, then serve God. If Baal is true and powerful and real, then you go and you serve him. And he challenged the 450 prophets of Baal. He says, Hey, meet me on top of the mountain, and let's have a test. And he did the test, and he told the prophets of Baal to prepare an altar and, and, and to uh, uh, Pray to Baal, and whichever God answered by fire would be shown to be real. And so they prayed all morning long, and all towards the evening they prayed, and nothing happened. Of course nothing happened. Who is Baal? And, and Elijah mocked them. He said, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he got to use the bathroom. He took a potty break. Maybe y'all got to maybe gotta shout a little louder, get his attention. And then he said, y'all finished yet? It's my turn. And he says, okay, I'm going to build an altar. And he's built an altar, nothing secret about the altar, but he wanted to know that he represented the God of Israel, who's the God of everyone. And he says, I want you to pour a whole bunch of water all around, build a trench around this altar and fill up the whole trench with water so that there's no trick being done here. And he prayed a simple prayer, and he said, God, show yourself as, as to who you are to these people. And God answered by fire. It said the fire was so severe, it licked up all the water in the trench. 
And so Elijah proved that God is the God worthy of worship and praise. Now, he didn't stop there. He told Israel, now you see who's true. What should you do? What action should you take? He said, take those 450 prophets of Baal and kill them. Put them to death because they have brought Israel to wickedness and sin. Get rid of them. And that's what they did. Now, there's another side of that story, and, and that goes to 1 Kings chapter 19. So <laughs> let's just turn there. This was done before Ahab, right in front of the king of Israel. In chapter 19, verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel threatens Elijah. And uh, we, we kind of know what happens through that story. Elijah runs away, but he's actually protected by God. And God preserves him, ministers to him, feeds him, and speaks to him. There's a lot that, that you can, can, can get from there. Um, we've gone through the story before. But you remember what God told Elijah. I'm going to just share a little bit of that with <laughs> Look at 1 Kings 19, verse 14. The end of verse 13 says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God spoke to him. Verse 14 says, he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it. Now look what God tells them to do. Verse 15. The Lord said to him, go, return on, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Haziel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, circle that name, the son of Nishmi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Ebameholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. Here we are introduced to a, a man named Jehu. So just put a note on that. We'll get, to back, get back to that in a minute. So you know, we, we've so far, we, we've looked at Ahab and his wife Jezebel. We looked at Elijah, the prophets of Baal. Now turn with me to chapter 21. <coughs> Excuse me. 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 1. I said we're going to bring into this picture Jehu and Jezreel. Jehu is a man's name. He's one of the kings of Israel. He's going to come and take his place after Ahab. And Jezreel is the name of a place. Let's see more about it in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, Naboth, now we're introduced to another man. We'll talk about his, the significance of him. Now, Naboth, the Jezreelite. Where's Naboth from? He's called the Jezreelite. He's from Jezreel. Naboth, the Jezreelite, all right, had a vineyard in Jezreel. 
So we understand this man Naboth. We're not told a whole lot about him, but he has a, a vineyard. He's from Jezreel. He's a Jezreelite. So, okay, our ears perk up, perk up a bit. So now, what else though? He has a vineyard in Jezreel, but look at this verse in verse 1. Beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Where did Naboth live? Where, where was his vineyard? Right next to the palace of the king. So the king's palace was in Jezreel. Right next door to Ahab. That might, I'm okay. That might help us in our understanding of what's going on and what's going to happen. So let's continue. What happens in this account? Well, you can read those verses. You'll find out that Ahab wanted that vineyard because it was right next door to him. He just wanted it. And he, he thought he'd be nice and go over and ask Naboth, can I have it? And Naboth was like, I'm sorry, man. This is my family's heritage and I can't give it up. He said, King said, well, I'll pay you for it. I'll give you another piece of land for it. But Naboth said, no, I, I can't. He's basically saying, you're the king. You can have anything you want. Go get something else. This means a lot to me. Ahab went home and sulked because he couldn't get that vineyard. His wife Jezebel comes home and says, why are you so sad, honey? And he told her the story. He wanted his vineyard real bad, but he couldn't get it. And she said, ain't this something? Ain't you the king? You can do whatever you want to do. He says, look, I'll tell you what. I'll take care of this. So Jezebel takes the king's letterhead and writes an official letter, as from the king, telling the men of Jezreel to proclaim a fast and invite Naboth, to the fast and invite two worthless fellows, the Bible says, there and accuse Naboth of doing something as worthy of death, that he blasphemes God and he blasphemes the king. Now, why do you need some worthless fellows to do that? Because it's not true. Because it's a lie. You need somebody who has that kind of character to tell a lie and bring a man to death who, 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 kind of person that wants to do that. And so they bring some worthless fellows out and they do that. And what happens? Well, Jezebel tell them, told them what should happen. He says, I'm writing this letter to you. I want you to do this thing, have this fast, accuse Naboth of these things, and then take him out and put him to death. She signed it with the king's official signature. They got this letter, and they did it. They accused Naboth. Naboth, in other words, was an innocent, righteous man. And he, his property was stolen. His life was taken because the king wanted it for himself. How do you think God felt about that? What we see is ugly, un injustice being done in the land. God does not look the other way. It's even more so when it's coming from the top, when it's coming from the king. So I want us, there's something that God wants us to understand about this story. God judges Ahab 
in this story. Look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he is gone to take possession. <coughs> so there he was, admiring the property he had just acquired. You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus saith the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. So Elijah prophesies to Ahab the word of God, the judgment of God. Because Ahab had done this wicked deed against an innocent, godly person, God stepped in and he says, I'm going to act and I'm going to judge. I want you to notice something, that God doesn't always prevent the deed from happening. Naboth lost his life and lost his vineyard. But God does step in and judge. And he's saying, thus saith the Lord, I will judge wrong. I notice, I see, and I will judge. God is saying that this wickedness wickedness on the earth has grown to the level where my own people and the king of my people are wicked in such a, 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 an ugly way. And I will step in and I will judge. I want you to see God's judgment. <clears throat> In 1 Kings chapter 22. Sometime later, the king of Israel, which is Ahab, and the king of Judah come together against a common enemy, and they decide to, to fight against that enemy. The king of Israel has this, I think it's kind of a weird idea. He says, you know, he says to the king of Judah, you ought to dress up in your kingly array, but I'm going to go incognito so nobody knows who I am. Now, I don't know why the king of Judah would do a thing like that. So he goes into battle dressed up as a king, and the other king is dressed up as a regular person. Well, of course, the enemy sees the king, and they've been told, look, if we, if we get the king, we win. So they go and they attack the king, which they think is the king of Israel, but it's actually the king of Judah. Now you would think, man, God's justice is not being done, right? This dude done tricked himself out of another way of God dealing with him. And we see that kind of in our own lives. We, we see the injustices that happen in life and we wonder what's going to happen. Look for verse 33. I'm in 
1 Kings 22, verse 33. When the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. So they, they found this guy who they thought was the king of Israel because he looked like a king, and he was a king. But when they found out it wasn't really Ahab, they pulled back. And I, I love this next verse. You just got to read it. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Now, just think about that. He didn't know this guy was king, and he just said, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. It said, struck him. Look at that. Struck the king between the scale armor and the breastplate. So he had these pieces of armor that covered him, and there was one tiny little crease where a sword or spear could get through. And it said by random. I, I like the way the word of God puts that. In other words, in man's doing, he didn't know that he would accomplish all this, and he didn't even intend to, but God knew and intended. God is sovereign in all that he does. Now let's talk about what happens as a result of this. Look what happens. <clears throat> therefore, in the middle of verse 34, Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. Battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot, facing the Syrians, until at evening he died. <clears throat> and the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, look at verse 37. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. So it happened just like God said it would happen. Now, let's continue on because we're not done. We haven't even gotten to Jehu yet. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 9. God has a judgment on Ahab because of what he's done. And he says... You're going to face this judgment. Now, I could go into more detail how Ahab was sorry for what he did. He even seems to repent. And God says, because you've repented, it's not going to happen all to you, but through your sons, I'm going to bring this kingdom down. And he says that. In chapter 9 of 2 Kings now, We get the story of Jehu. And we have a different prophet now. Not Elijah, but Elisha. The follow-up from Elijah. And one of the things that he, God tells Elisha to do is to anoint a certain person king over Israel. Verse 3, then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head. Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Now open the door and flee. Do not linger. Who is he supposed to anoint? <clears throat> I 
Verse 2, when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nishmi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows. So he used to go and find this Jehu individual. <clears throat> he anoints him to be king of Israel. He does that, and then God pronounces a judgment on the house of Ahab. Look at verse 6 of that same chapter. <coughs> 6 through 8. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured oil on his head, saying to him, Thus said the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. So God uses this Jehu to bring about his judgment upon the house, the remaining descendants of Ahab. But it's interesting how it takes place. How does Jehu do this? We skip down to verse 15. After Jehu is anointed king, by the prophet Elisha, he goes and he, ha he, he mounts an attack on the then king of Israel, who is of the house of Ahab. And we can see how that happens in verse 15. Let's start with verse 14. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Haziel, king of Syria. Now don't, don't get tied up in the name. Don't get confused by all the names. But here's a king of Israel who's a descendant of Ahab and he's been wounded in battle against the enemy he's been fighting and, and, and Jehu is going after him. We're told though that in the wounds that he suffered in this battle he goes, guess where to be healed? Jezreel. He goes to Jezreel. In the city of Jezreel to be healed of these wounds. Now, why is that significant? Because we, we see God <coughs> fulfilling what he said. Look at verse now 21, same chapter. <coughs> Joram said, make ready. They made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his chariot, and went to meet Jehu. So Jehu came after them with, a, with, 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 with his army, and these two, the king of Israel and the king of Judah, went out to meet him kind of like, what's going on here, man? What, what do you come here for? You come for peace or, or you come for trouble? So he went, they went out to meet him. But guess where they happened to meet at? Let's read verse 21 again. Joram said, make ready. And they, and they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. It just so happened the place where they were coming to meet is 
the valley of Jezreel, at the property of Naboth, Naboth, who Jezebel had had killed and King Ahab had had killed, an innocent man who was killed, and the killing of which God uh, pronounced judgment on Ahab and his house. And so look what happens. Skip down to verse 24. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, take him up and throw him on a plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So we see there's a little bit of history with the place of Jezreel and with the name of Jehu. In fact, God had used Jehu to bring about his judgment on the wicked king and the wicked kings of Israel. And so back in Hosea, let's take a look at what he's saying. No, we didn't get through a lot of this, but we'll just keep going as, as the weeks come. Let's go back to verse 4 of Hosea chapter 1. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Now here, the, the, the house of Jehu represents all the wicked kings of Israel. Even though God used Jehu to, to bring punishment on Ahab, Jehu himself was a wicked king. And it represents all the wicked kings of Israel. He says, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God is simply saying I contend with those who lead my people astray into idol worship and I bring judgment now on the entire nation because of this wickedness. And we're going to continue in that, but I want you to see the contrast with this because we, we are tempted to say God is simply a God of judgment, but judgment stands and it, it allows grace to pop. You know what I mean? When, you, when you're a decorator, what you do is you want certain items and certain things to, 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 to to grab attention in a setting. So you place them in a setting and you place them, the things around them so that they are contrasted in that setting and that, that particular couch or that seat or that chair or whatever pops because it becomes the predominant theme in its own setting. God's mercy pops in the context of his judgment. So many people today want to speak just of God of love and people don't understand and get it. God is both God of judgment and mercy. We ought to, to, we ought to, 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 to run towards his mercy because of his great judgment. That's why people don't take God seriously today is they don't think he's a God of judgment at all. 
and mock his judgment. But people don't appreciate his grace today is because they don't see his judgment as well. But I, if I can skip to Hosea chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. In the midst of this great wickedness, God says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Now, he just got finished saying, you are not my people. I will not show mercy on you. My judgment stands there. But in the midst of that, he says, it's not just my judgment. He says, I have a plan for my people that they will be so vast and so great, they will not be able to be numbered. How can both of those things be true? They are true because God's judgment is real. Those who experience his judgment will not enjoy his mercy and his grace. But there's a group that's going to enjoy that mercy and that grace. Why is that? Because God's judgment is poured out on his son, Jesus. All these stories about Ahab and about Jehu and about all of these wicked kings show the need for a good king who will judge in righteousness. You can, you can just see neighbors crying out, saying, oh, that we had a king that wasn't a, a, a wicked man. Oh, that we had a king. If I lived, to a king, lived next door to a king who was righteous, he wouldn't steal my land and murder me. Naboth is crying out and God is answering that prayer and says, I got one coming. Who will both bring judgment, righteousness, and mercy. That man is King Jesus. That man is Jesus. He has laid down his life to, 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 to answer the judgment of God. And he's been resurrected to speak to the mercy of God. And our lives are redeemed in Jesus, who is the righteous judge, the righteous king, who deals with the sins and yet answers in his own compassion and his mercy. Would you marvel? at God. God's picture is one of judgment and one of mercy. He's to be taken seriously. He has a vivid picture of the unthinkable, despicable, unfaithful ways of his people as pictured in Gomer, the wife of Hosea, and yet of the unimaginable grace and mercy and love of God to say, Hosea, you represent me. Go take this woman and bring her as your wife. Amazing picture of God's love to us. We are undeserving, and yet God joins us to himself as Hosea would join an unfaithful, undeserving wife to himself. How great is God's love and mercy towards us. Father, we thank you for this vivid picture. May it stay in our minds. <clears throat> May we see how it's fulfilled only in the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we hold fast to him and not be unfaithful. 
may we worship and admire his great love, mercy, and faithfulness all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.